Welcome to Insights and Indicators. I'm Jason Thomas, Carlisle's Head of Global Research and Investment Strategy. And in this podcast, I share our observations and opinions on the economic landscape, as well as insights from research being conducted by our team here at Carlisle. Today, we're discussing the 2023 outlook for private credit, and I'm joined by Mark Jenkins, Carlisle's Head of Global Credit. This episode was recorded on May 4th, 2023, and the discussion reflects composite portfolio data and analysis of recent government reports that are accurate as of that date. Before we get to Mark, I'd just like to make a a few observations about what we saw in the portfolio in April 2023. I would say first, we we did downgrade our outlook for growth in terms of the, the implied macro growth rates that we're seeing in the portfolio modestly. But, you know, there, there are certainly more signs of cracks this month than we'd seen previously. However, you know, I would say there's really no qualitative change to the outlook. And, and that is we still continue to be in, in a world where in the U.S. the consumer remains relatively strong. Consumption continues to grow, very much concentrated in those experiences categories, travel, tourism, live events. And, and of course, that's where most of the hiring is occurring today as well. And overall, I, I do think that the U.S. Is, is an economy where explaining the current environment still very much requires reference to the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which, of course, dominates the household finance landscape. The 30-year fixed rate mortgage is an interesting instrument because it, it transfers all of the interest rate risk, the risk of higher interest rates from borrowers to the holders of those mortgages. In this case, of course, principally banks which held about $2.8 trillion of mortgage securities and, and many more whole mortgages on their balance sheet. And so at the end of April, the effective mortgage interest rate that households paid on the $13 trillion stock of mortgages was still only 3.5%, even as, of course, the new rate on, on mortgages originated today is actually a closer to 7%. So that gap explains why households are doing relatively well. There's been no impact. There's been no decline in disposable household income from the increase in in rates. The mortgage rate is fixed. It's the same cash flow profile as before. But of course, those costs have been pushed onto the banks. And that difference, that spread between the the 3.5% that households pay and the the 6.75% or so that banks would originate new mortgages today is effectively reflected in the discount that mortgage securities and whole mortgages in their, their current market value relative to the face value. And this is something that, of course, continues to royal the banking system as you have uh, more institutions where those fair value losses are creating questions about capital adequacy. So again, a system with relatively stronger households, as we see in the data, and relatively weaker banks, which of course we see in the headlines virtually every day. I would say that despite the cracks that I mentioned, we don't see really any signs of the sort of contraction in economic activity or, or warning signs about a downturn that's going to force the Fed to forget about the work that it still has left to be done as it relates to inflation. Inflation has clearly come down. Right now, we see inflation running at about a 4% annualized rate. I think more interesting than, than the data are, I think, just the, the broader atmospherics. And and that is to say that we continue to see management teams that in many ways feel squeezed, higher wages, higher input costs, just much more aggressive pricing from suppliers 
And they continue to try to take price wherever they can. And so these underlying market dynamics, certainly more, more difficult to push through, but more eager to, to find different markets, different customers, different product lines, where, where they're able to increase price very often when there is no alternative supplier, or perhaps the alternative supplier, the competitor, is already operating at capacity, can't take on new orders. And, and as a consequence, you, you have the ability to, to push on price without any offsetting decline in purchases. So it's, again, an interesting environment. We continue to see somewhat stronger growth outside of the United States than what was expected. China continuing to grow at about a 6% annualized rate in April. And of course, Europe continues to avoid the recession that many analysts had expected, given the incredibly large rise in wholesale energy prices that we saw really starting in August and September of last year. So with that, I'd like to turn to Mark, given this complicated environment, to, to hear what he's thinking as it relates to, to credit and, and the broader investment environment there. And I guess, my, you know, my first question, given where rates are, given the, the failure of multiples to adjust proportionally to rates, there's obviously some challenging deal arithmetic. You know, as, as we've said, in many cases, the yield on the assets that a potential acquirer seeks to buy is actually lower than the, the yield on the liabilities that acquirer would issue against those assets. Obviously, there, there's been a substantial decline in transaction volumes as a consequence of this. And I was wondering, you know, where do you see the opportunities to deploy capital in credit markets today? And how long do you think this dry spell, so to speak, this, this period of you know, again, where, where multiples have not yet adjusted or, or rates have not yet adjusted. How long do you think this disequilibrium is likely to persist? Yeah, I mean, hi, Jason. As you said, I think, you know, it's, it's about the math at the end of the day. And right now, for borrowers, the math isn't necessarily working very well. And, you know, that hasn't readjusted. What's happened clearly is in the credit world, mostly because of base rates, you know, we've seen a 70 to 80% increase in financing costs, but that hasn't necessarily been accurately reflected in the equity returns. And I think for the paper that you and I worked on, you've got yields to the equity today of about 4% versus 11%. When your average cost of senior debt's around 11%, the math doesn't work anymore. So where are the opportunities? One is with the decreased amount of M&A activity, people are looking at first and foremost, you know, extending out their maturities because by the end of next year, early next year, they're going to have to start thinking about 2025 maturities that are coming due. So that's, that's, you know, opportunity number one. And I think opportunity number two is because of this disconnect between the cost of debt versus the yield to the equity and absent, you know, a return to the multiples or growth rates that we had expected, I guess, when we made when acquisitions were made in 2021, 2022, ultimately, there's going to have to be a restructuring of those balance sheets. We think that's a great opportunity where we talk about very often that the equity holder is going to have to, you know, endure some dilution to that equity to get to the next stage. And that opportunity, Jason, we think will persist for years, not months. Primarily because of the fact that, you know, you have a bit of a runway before you have to deal with some of these issues. And my experience would tell me is that you put off dealing with these things until the very end. So I think this will just unravel over a number of years. And if you really look back to end of 20, beginning of 21, 
there was somewhere in the area of plus or minus a trillion dollars of EV activity in the private equity space done at some of the highest multiples from a historical perspective. And as a result of that, we would expect that a great deal of those are going to require that type of bridge capital, which will come out of the credit markets and specifically out of an opportunistic or special sits type of a strategy. So over that period of time, you know, period of years as market participants, as, as management teams deal with the change circumstances, how do you see the dynamics between the high yield bond, the syndicated loan and, and private credit markets playing out over that period? Who, who are going to be the main suppliers of credit, you know, to, to sponsors, to, to private companies, to, to the broader markets? Well, I mean, year to date, it's interesting because the shift is obviously, well, not so obvious, but has been towards private credit. And today, if you look at, broadly speaking, high yield leveraged loans are roughly $3 trillion, And there's probably another, call it trillion, on the private credit side. So today, you know, I would argue the numbers show you it's about a third, a third, a third. Now, that great expansion in the private credit side has been as a result of the capital markets effectively shutting down for a period of time and, and they're relatively tepid, I would say, at this point in time. And that's driven primarily by the bank's appetite to underwrite risk in this environment. And put another way, private credit is willing to underwrite that risk at more certain levels than the banks are at this point in time. And that's driven by a number of factors CLO formation, technical factors, but also other extraneous factors that are happening to financial institutions that are away from the credit markets. You know, the mini run we've seen on the banks, you know, the risk of re-regulation as a result of what we've seen here in the U.S. and et cetera. Those are all having impacts on those financial institutions, how to think about risk, and that is constraining the credit conditions. So the, the question is, is will private credit become a greater proportion of that one third, one third? And the answer is, I don't think anybody knows. I think if I was to speculate, I would say we will become, private credit will continue to be a significant part of that equation. It will not be the dominant one because when regular markets return, and you know, again, I think that's over years, not months, those markets are the most efficient markets for borrowers to go to, and they those will provide the most efficient low cost solutions over time but not in the current market. The one thing that has changed for certain, and we recognize this by looking at the deals we finance here for ourselves at Carlisle, is the majority of junior capital for bios had been prior to this in any event sourced in the private credit market. The banks effectively have been outsourced to the private credit markets, if you will, for junior capital. Most large bios tend not to want to put fixed rate long duration high yield bonds in place. That is more of a corporate product, if you will. And so I would expect we will continue to take more share. We already have most of the share of the junior capital piece. And that may even gravitate over into corporates as well over time. So I think if you were to say there's a place that's going to expand. Now, when you look at the concentric circles between private and liquid, if you will, or the BSL or bank syndicate at low market, we think that the overlap of those two circles that probably grows a little bit in space as we are able to write in private credit much larger checks. And for instance, the number of Unitronch deals over a billion dollars, which are, you know, think of that as significant in size, has grown from zero to over 71 billion in the span of five years. So 
private credit market is definitely going to expand in part of that equation, but part of that's going to be really reliant or dependent, if you will, on where the more liquid markets price over time. And let's not forget that CLOs, which account for about 65% of that market, are probably the most efficiently levered low-cost vehicles. So when that formation begins again, then I would think we'll still, you know, most people are going to prefer to do BSLs to the extent they can. So just one, one final question. You mentioned the liability costs for borrowers today, loan packages yielding 10, 11% opportunistic credit in that 14 to 16% range. And I'm, ju- I'm just wondering, given this supply demand imbalance and the pullback from banks, under these circumstances, will, will do private credit investors underwrite to higher returns? Do they start targeting higher returns? Or is, is this a situation where most of the swings occur with the risk return profile, which is to say that actually the yields are, are not materially different, but you have much higher quality borrowers in, in the portfolio? Yeah, well, I think the biggest thing that's happened in the 24 months, Jason, is, you know, we actually have real dispersion in the credit markets. And I think what that means is for the better quality credits, you are getting, I would argue, better risk adjusted returns because the base rates have moved. I mean, most of the movement in cost has been in the base rates. Credit spreads still, as you know, remain well below recessionary levels. And we can talk about that as well, which, which is, you know, what happens there. But because of that dispersion, if you will, that's happening within credit, you know, the higher quality names are, are, are getting dragged along, if you will, with that cost. And the lower quality names just don't have access. And those are the ones that are going to restructure. So I think on balance, it, it kind of depends on where you are. But net net, you know, you're getting paid slightly better for the risk, I would argue. And it's interesting if you looked at where we underwrite deals to, let's say two years ago, companies were being bought at 20 times EBITDA. We still were underwriting the credit to six and a half, seven times, never really believing the valuation at 20 times. So now if those things are worth 15 times and we're still underwriting at six times, but at a higher yield, there is an argument in certain credits that you're doing better on a risk adjusted basis. Because I, I don't think any of us on the credit side really ever believed that loan to value equation, given the inflated levels. So I, I think we're pricing credit a little better. Another way to put it perhaps is, you know, we always know that as lenders, we're writing put options to the equity. But in the past, I think we were writing put options and lending them the premium to buy those options. I think today we're writing put options and we're not subsidizing the premium for the option. So I think we're in a better place, if you will. And terms and conditions are slightly better than 24 months ago. And I think that accrues to the benefit of the lender as well. And, you know, you did mention spreads. It is interesting to see how tight spreads are given the the macro uncertainty. There's expectations, of course, for the Fed to start cutting rates by the end of the year. Three rate cuts are priced in. Three months so far is expected to decline to about two and a half percent over the next two years. Over this period of time, do you expect maybe as as rates come down that that spreads will widen? What's your outlook there for the pure compensation of credit risk embedded in those spreads? Yeah, well, credit spreads, you know, in some ways are a function of defaults and recoveries, right? And and defaults have been at a historic low for so many years that, you know, that math equation hasn't really tied in. But we've seen defaults pick up. We believe actually recoveries will be slightly lower because of the laxness of the, of the covenants. And as a result of that, you would expect as defaults pick up, recoveries are lower, that compensation, 
as it's, you know, for that risk is, is reflected in spreads are going to widen. So, I, you know, I don't know if it's a one for one ratio, but if you think about why rates are going to come down, it's because you need some stimulus in the economy because the economy is contracting or you're in a recession. And as a result, it'll probably offset, not lock stop, not in a linear fashion, but by some degree by spreads widening. And that, that would be my expectation. So if people think we're going back to a zero rate SOFR plus 300 environment, I wouldn't be banking on that. I think we have to expect that we're working in a more elevated interest rate environment and an overall coupon environment for an extended period of time. And that's going to be a reflection of widening credit spreads, even if base rates come down. Yeah. And, and I would just say also that I think that the market expectations for the decline in base rates looks, I would say, optimistic to me in that, you know, I, I do think, as, as mentioned, there's more work to be done. And those rate cuts will come. It's just that they could be six to 12 months later than market participants currently anticipate. But thank you so much, Mark, for your time. Thanks for joining us. And, and thank you to all the listeners for tuning in. Thanks, Jason.